Welcome to Get Shift Done podcast. You're here with me, Alex Hughes, entrepreneur, and we're powered by Shifties and Shift Momentum. I will just give a quick intro from my point of view, how kind of Simon and my paths crossed. Um, as a as a man everyone knows, which is Lee Smith, and Lee, Lee Smith seems to know every man and woman. And uh, he said to me one day, I think he put me and you in a joint chat on Messenger or something, you guys have got to meet, you guys have got to have a conversation. Just enough said. We had a conversation and yeah, blew, honestly, Simon blew my mind. Um, what what you met, the, the success that you that you achieved over in Hong Kong and before that, like everything you've done a success and what you're doing with your family now is a success and they're all different chapters and it really intrigued me. And Simon's given me loads of time, you know, so essentially Simon had a, um, a shifties essentially over in Hong Kong, a similar kind of model to what we are looking to develop. And I asked the question as I will, how can we replicate or learn lessons from that model that, that you had developed? And we put that in together and we're working on it to find a way that essentially it means that the meaning behind shifties and what you created with over in Hong Kong with Nest was really about everyone being a success and helping each other grow and, and really supporting each other's growth. And it wasn't kind of a, you know, I win, you lose. It was very much, let's try and support each other. So that just attracted me further to the conversation. And since then, I've probably borrowed, I'll give it back at some time, I promise, hours of Simon's time. And he's kindly been doing that ever since you really stepped out of Hong Kong. He's been, that's what the Good Luck Club podcast is all about. And so Simon will explain that in a minute. But, you know, just giving time to me, helping me question things and just trying to understand life. What does that, what does it look like in 10 years from now? You know, those sort of questions. You've been absolutely overwhelmingly giving and it's uh, much appreciated. Well, that's nice of you to say. And uh, to be honest, it's easy to give to someone that's trying to give as well. So. Now, appreciate it. So, Simon, could you give us the long story? I said to you earlier, I want the long story because when I first asked Simon, you know, kind of what he'd done, you know, where, where, he, where he's had success, where the failures came, you know, what that journey looks like, because it's quite a long journey. I know you're young, you're extremely young, but you've, you know, you've done so much over that period of time. And I wanted to understand it all. And you almost apologize, a bit like where we started this conversation, you were almost apologizing for success, but we do want to hear that story. We want to understand. So, Please do, do tell. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. I actually feel quite connected to what you're doing because I, I grew up in St. Neots and I went to Long Sands. So anyone listening from Long Sands? I've just seen Matthew Power tune in. Oh, hey, Matthew. Good to see you. So, um, yeah, we, we, went, we went to school from like the age of three or four years old in Little Paxton, you know, of all, all places. So yeah. I, I grew up in uh, St. Neitz and I think, you know, my, my family history is interesting and it set, set me on an interesting path. But I, I basically left school and left home at 15 years old. I, uh, I decided it was the right thing for me to do to start a business. And I basically built a company which subsequently failed. Um, and, and I, but I basically originally, originally thought to myself, right, I'm an entrepreneur and I know exactly what I'm doing. And then I started being an entrepreneur and realized I knew nothing. <laughs> Typical 15 year old, I guess. Um, but, you know, fast forward. And uh, in 2016, I sold my last company to PwC. So at 40 years old, I was able to retire. Wow. Now, um, re retire is a funny word these days. To me, um, retirement really means being able to work on whatever I want to work on without the need to commercialize it. And so um, I, 
you, you mentioned success earlier and my, my measure of success, and it took me a while to figure this out, um, why, why I was happy in what I was doing, even though I wasn't always making lots of money, is I, I like the idea that I'm free. You know, to me, success is freedom. It's not someone else telling me what to do and when to do it. And it's not someone else's vision and mission. Um, I like working with people who have similar vision and mission to me. That's why I like working with you, Alex. Um, what you're doing it, it aligns with my values. And I basically really see success as having the ability to work on what you want to work on without necessarily having to worry about the financial side of it. And so at 40, I got to that point. Um, and I spent a few years kind of selling down a lot of my assets um, and getting rid of um, possessions I didn't need and focusing in on you know, what I wanted in the next phase of my life. But how did I get there? I mean, it, it's, a, it's an up and down road, like any entrepreneurial story. And so, you know, when trying to describe it, it's, it's, always, it's always difficult. But basically, I've started 17 companies from scratch, 13 of those companies with no money. Interestingly enough, the ones I started with no money, and I mean no investment when I say no money, other than my own investment, have been the ones that are most successful. And actually the ones where I've raised money, for example, or looked at funding systems have always ended up being less innovative than the ones I built where money was, was tight. So, um, but I've always enjoyed being an entrepreneur. I, 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 never, I never for one moment ever regretted um, starting, leaving school at 15. And I'm now a bit of an advocate for anti-university process. I, I think it burdens people with debt and I think it teaches you the past and doesn't necessarily teach you what's coming. Um, and, and the only way really to learn things like business is not go do a business MBA in my view. And I've, I've spoken a lot of him at business MBAs. I just spoke at the Harvard business school um, last week. So, you know, I, I speak at these things and I, and I always say the same thing that you really learn the most by doing. Yeah. And so I've learned how to be an entrepreneur by doing, and I've learned how to be a successful entrepreneur by figuring out what success means to me. And, and not really worrying about what anybody else might think of me. I have my own measure of success. I don't let anyone else decide whether or not I'm successful. Great, great message, man. Yeah, thanks. And, and, and basically along the way, um, I, I, my, my, I basically had a, a small business in England that did okay. And then I dipped in and out of kind of consultancy work, you know, sole trader kind of um, consultancy stuff. And then I got the opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And when I got to Hong Kong, I think that's when I woke up. I pretty much went from Sunnets, Cambridge area, straight to Hong Kong. And um, for anyone that's been to London, you know, it's funny. I'm now back in London after 20 years in Hong Kong. And when I came back to London, everybody, all my family who live in Sunnets, Cambridge kind of area, when yeah. they come to London, they're like, oh, it's so busy in London. And I'm like, this is like a country town. Yeah, I can imagine Hong Kong's crazy, right? It's crazy. So, but I went literally, when I first got to Hong Kong, I did not like it. I, I didn't really understand the culture. You know, people were working all the time and you know, I, I just couldn't understand it. And I, you know, I, at the beginning, I always had this concept of like work-life balance. You know, I, I think it's my English training. What is that? Exactly. <laughs> but I still, even though I was an entrepreneur in England, I still think that I had this concept of work-life balance. Yeah. In, in, in the format of right, my evenings are for me and my weekends are for me, as if, as if there's some separation. And, and Hong Kong taught me there's no separation. And you know, I remember um, when I arrived there, a billionaire who I was working with um, picked me up at the airport himself, you know, in his fancy car. I mean, he, he, I'm, I'm nobody in the, in the big picture of things. And this billionaire picks me up 9 p.m. at night on a Saturday night from the airport. Fair play. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and as I begin to talk to him about what he's doing in his business and how he's brought me over to get involved and help, I'm like, I, I just can't believe how hard he's working when he's in that situation. Yeah. 
and he kind of says to me, Simon, I have no work-life balance. I just have life. Yeah, man. You know, and, and, and that was the beginning of a whole new journey for me. And uh, 20 years later, um, after spending a lot of time figuring out the culture, I realized there is no difference in the culture between Asia and, and everywhere else. It's just a matter of mindset. It's, it's not culture. It's mindset. And, and in Asia, they've got their weaknesses as well as strengths. But one thing's for sure is that people really are quite ambitious. Yeah. And people aren't embarrassed of their success. And I do, I do think that's something else I picked up in England. And I, now I'm back in England. I'm, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm learning England again. Um, but, but basically, while I was there, I, I did a series of businesses. Some succeeded and some didn't. But what I found was that from a billionaire to, to, to someone on the street who's just starting out in life, they'll help you. Everybody wants to help you. And if you're willing to work hard and try, they don't look at your resume or look at your qualifications or, and, and decide whether or not they're going to work with you. They look at you in the eye. And so, you know, a billionaire gave me a chance without even meeting me to get a leg up in Hong Kong. And, and people in Hong Kong are like that. If you, they, they, just, they go on basically, they look at you and they, they see if you're you know, the sort of person they want to work with, if you're authentic, honest, and then they give you a chance. And that was something I hadn't really experienced in England because a lot of the time it was like, okay, how big's your company? How yeah. what's your turnover? You know, all the competitions, anything here for entrepreneur stuff is all based on your turnover or your, your, the size of the company. And it's not, not enough about the person behind it, their mission. And in Asia, it's different. You know, there is a lot more of an attitude towards like, okay, I don't care what your age is. You know, if you can accomplish X, we'll give it to you. Nice. Even down to the corporation level. So I started an agency called Fluid, which uh, became the largest independent creative agency in the region. And one of our first clients was Estee Lauder. Wow. And so literally the person who was the CEO of Estee Lauder in that market, he just had one, I had no brochure. I had no you know, fancy collateral. I just sat down with him and he said, this is what we're trying to do, Simon. We're trying to do these products that help people's skin repair. Blah, blah, blah. What are your ideas? And I just sat there and gave him a few ideas. And he said, sure, I'm going to give you the account. Wow. You know, this is like a half a million US dollar account, which was a big deal for me at the time. Yeah, well, wow, mate, it's a big deal for anyone at any time. Yeah, well, and, and that was really, you know, um, a, a beginning of a quite, quite an exciting journey. And, I, I, and 20 years went by so quick. Um, and that, that, that's a good and a bad thing. It's a bit like, you know, you don't watch the clock if you love what you do. But sometimes you can look up and say, hold on a minute, 20 years have gone by. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and yeah, but I, I, during that time, I not only built up these companies and, and managed to sell the last one fluid to PwC for more money than I'll ever need in 2016. Um, along the way, I, I also started up an investment firm that you mentioned earlier called yeah. Net. This is fascinating. Yeah, and, and I started this business, really it started back in Asia in, in, in 2008, nine. A lot of people in the financial industry were getting laid off because of the financial crisis and they were starting businesses, but they really didn't necessarily have business acumen. They were smart people that had been trained in banks to do one thing, but you know, they had trouble booking their own travel and they had trouble, you know, <laughs> you know doing a lot of things that, but these weren't stupid people. So anyway, um, they, they, these people would come to me with business ideas and I, and I started to back them. And um, back in, back in that, those days in Asia, I didn't really know the concept of angel investing or incubators or accelerators. This was, this was still new in the US, frankly. Um, but in, in, in Asia, it hadn't been heard of. Um, there were still people licking their wounds from the dot-com bust. Yeah. Um, and Hong Kong went quite heavy into that. So they, you know, people were licking their wounds, like the dot-com's over, let's get back to real business. Mm. And um, so, so um, I, I basically started investing in these businesses. 
and investing initially um, time. And then as I uh, started to make more money and, and could afford it, I started investing time and capital in these businesses. And then it got so serious that my um, daytime business, Fluid, um, was starting to suffer. I had 50 corporate clients at that point. A lot of those relationships were, were relationships close to me. And I realized that I had to make a decision. Either I was going to be in the angel investing uh, support startups business, or I was going to be in this, um, get paid by corporations to help them grow their businesses. And I decided that I'd go with my tribe, which is you know what I am, which is an entrepreneur. And I, I started a business called Nest. Now, a big part of the business uh, model was really frankly trying to help the 15 year old me. When I first started out, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what to ask. I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know who to ask. I didn't know things like mentors. There was no accelerators and stuff like that around at the time. The best thing you could get was some, and I mean all due respect to these organizations, but some crappy business organization that half the time was run by people that had never started a business in their life. I know, I know. So I, that hasn't I, changed, I, by the way. They still exist. Yeah, I know, I know. I just, I just started, as I invested in people, I just said to them, I'll invest in you and help you, but make a pledge that when you've got to a point where you're successful and you've got time to give back, do just that. And, and you know, kind of build an entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs network. And that, that led on to forming a, an official kind of investment vehicle called Nest. And then from that, we started uh, doing accelerators. And an, an accelerator, I'm sure everyone knows by now that model, but it wasn't that well known. We were the second company in the world to do it. Wow. The first company in the world to do it was Techstars. The second in the world was us. Wow. And we were the first in Asia to do it, which is a big deal when you're talking Asia, you know, China, um, Thailand and so on, you know, it's, it's not just Hong Kong. So it, it was a big deal. And, and what we did, what, which was really clever, um, and we did it by accident, and I'm going to get into this, how we, how we did it in a minute, but we realized that um, corporations, big corporations needed to innovate, but they found it very hard. Startups, on the other hand, uh, could innovate like crazy, but they didn't necessarily have the um, capital or client basis to scale as quickly as they would like. So we started matching them up and we kind of, frankly, scared the shit out of corporates by saying to them, <laughs> if, if you don't help these startups and be a part of the, what's coming, you're going to get disrupted. So you know, Yellow Pages, um, Google actually approached Yellow Pages to work with them. And Yellow Pages said, we don't want this you know, crappy online. You know, we make this big yellow book. <laughs> Remember that back. We don't need you, so sod off. And, you know, of course, if today they'd done a deal and said, yeah, we'll help you and take 10% of Google and, and you know, we'll partner up. They'd be uh, they'd be a pretty successful company today. Oh, wow, yeah. Google. So um, I mean, and the list goes on of companies like Kodak that actually invented the digital camera, didn't do anything with it. Anyway, we managed to convince, in the end, twenty-one corporates to help startups. And some some examples would be like, well, Nissan, for example, where we got them on board as a partner. Nissan have four thousand one hundred showrooms around the world, and we team them up with uh, Internet of Thing technology items that, for example, electric bike. And they would then help that startup with their electric bike. And then they would distribute that electric bike in all their showrooms. Every time you buy a car, you get an wow. electric bike. Wow. Last mile partnership. And so these, these companies that would normally have to go out and raise money and sell equity in their businesses to get the capital to then go out and build a distribution network, for example, we removed the need for all of that. Yeah, that's powerful. And we, created, and we saved the equity of the founders and gave them a leg up. We, gave, we called it giving them a competitive, an unfair competitive advantage. Mm. And we worked on companies that had a purpose. A big part of the companies that we would help weren't just any old bike company, but companies that were also trying to do some good with their success. And we, we also did partnerships with people like AIA, which in uh, Hong Asia is now, it's now the largest life insurance company. It's wow. second largest in the world. They've got 98 million monthly paying customers. And we would 
hook them up with you know up and coming new startup companies in healthcare and we would say right you know as long as you're not doing life insurance a direct comp competitor to life insurance with AIA but you were doing a healthcare product that could help people live longer live a happier healthier life then you could get access to that client base so suddenly you're a startup you know maybe with you know a small cap raise and a great idea suddenly you've got access to a 98 million uh, client database uh, in, in partnership with AIA to give you credibility. I mean, that, what? That, that, that's crazy. Yeah, that, 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 and those sorts of partnerships, you know, were, were very exciting. And, and we opened up in Nairobi, um, Bangkok, uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong. Of course, we were already there. And, and we opened up this, this model in all these markets. Now, what we found, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the business model in part because I think it relates to Shifties. People might find it interesting to see where Shifties could go. But uh, what, we, what we realized as we did these accelerators, what would happen is, People will apply to Nest for investment. And frankly, we, you know, we've invest, I've invested in 66 startups. But as an organization, we could only invest really doing due diligence and deploying capital and still being useful at scale. And we were about 70 people, uh, but still at scale. We could invest in maximum around five, six companies a month. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. You, you add that to, to the accelerators. So we then had accelerator programs, and I think at one point, going at one time we had not we had nine accelerators running and in the accelerators you have seven startups yep. every six months right yep. so that gives you some idea of the numbers but on top of that we were still there was still probably two or two two and a half thousand companies probably every six months that we couldn't help even the accelerators or nest direct investment so we built something called meta which was basically uh, the beginnings of you know, what i'm now working on which is the entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs piece which is you know, Nest doesn't have, it's not, can't invest in any more companies. Everyone's got a, a cap. Um, the accelerators, right, this is the, they're all filled out. Yeah. Well, but a lot of these people are still great people with great ideas. They might not be the next Facebook, but they don't all need to be that. No. So we, we tried to build out this thing called Meta, which is basically an entrepreneur's club. Um, it didn't work for various reasons, that part of the business, but Nest itself did work. And the accelerator model is still going very strong today. We, we have American Express as partners. Nissan is still a partner. AIA is still a partner. We work KPMG, uh, PwC's competitors. So that was an interesting yeah. Um, But that, that's how it all played out. Now, when I sold my company, that's a whole story that might be interesting to people at some point about how yeah. I sold my company and, and, and how to sell a company and, and how that played out. I think um, you know, I can go into more detail around um, how it all played out for me. But you know, I'll just add one thing at the end and maybe then we can have a little discussion. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of questions as well. Right. Well, one thing I just want to say though, when I came back to England and sat down and like all successful entrepreneurs, I thought, you know, I'll write a book about how, how successful I've been and yeah. how I did it and you know, a self-help book about how brilliant I am. <laughs> and I wrote, I wrote this book and then, uh, and it's written complete. And then I sat down and reread it myself and I thought to myself, man, you know, there's something missing from this, you know, like I'm telling people how I did it, but it, you know, it sounds conceited. There's just something wrong with this book. And so I basically went into re in a real honest detail about like, how did I make it? How did it actually happen? How yeah, did nice, I get WT nice. to find my business? You know, what, what's the truth of it? Yes. I built this company. I, you know, you hear all the lines about an entrepreneur. I persevered and I, I worked hard and you know, I was in the right place. And you know, all, all those things are true. But I know plenty of people that work very hard and don't make it. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and so I had this, basically I had this thing in my head. I realized the truth. Why was I successful? And this is the truth. I was lucky. Hmm. And I know a lot of people when they hear it, their instinct, you know, especially in England, were like, no, no, you're not lucky. You worked hard. 
Um, and, and then people throw lines out, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Well, we know that's not true. And the truth is, if I actually look, when I stopped working so hard, it's when I actually got luckier. Mm, okay. so like when, I, when I brought someone in to run fluid, I worked less hard, but I made more. You scaled. And, and, I, and I learned this concept of like, to be successful, you buy time, don't sell time. Yes. And, and I, just, I just kept scaling that, that model up. But, but I, I, I say it, you know, I, I want people to know that there's this element that they need, which is luck. And I think there's two versions of luck. And I think that one of my missions at the moment is to get the dictionary updated, and I'm working on that. Talia, who's, who, who, who works for me, is in, in the group now. She's helping me do this too. We want to get the dictionary updated because we, we believe that, that luck um, is, 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 should have two definitions. The first definition is random luck. And let's call that you know, where you're born and yeah. what you're born into. You, know, you have no control over that. That's just, just random. But I do think there's a second element of luck. Uh, which is more a luck you control. I actually think it's a skill. In fact, I'm so sure I've actually figured out how to get luckier in life. There's, there's three elements to it, and if people are interested, okay. can go through it. Um, but there's three elements. It depends to- out. Yeah. yeah, well, I can do it, but I don't, I don't want to talk, 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 but there, there are. No, no, keep going. Simon, honestly, keep going, man. All right. So I, I discovered that I was lucky. Yeah, I did all the things I was supposed to do, but if I'm being blunt, luck was a key element to it. And, and I think anyone that's successful should say it and be truthful about it. Otherwise, it gives people the misconception that they're not as smart as you when they've worked just as hard. And, and that's not true. I am not that smart. Anyone that went to school with me will know I was pretty average at school. And, and, and so, but I figured out that what I did, well, how, how, I, how I got lucky. And there's three elements that make you lucky. I now, I now know to be 100% true. The first is risk. In my mind, risk is like a muscle you have to keep working out and push, push, push. Because a lot of people, they especially if you've made something in life, you're scared to risk it, right? So that's why when the older you get, the harder it gets to take risk. But at a very young age, I took a massive risk for various reasons. I took a massive risk and and I I learned to just take more and more risk. Now I'm talking about calculated risk Mm. and I'm talking about the psychology of risk. Now risk is very closely linked to fear, right? Now when people feel fear, what tends to happen is they misunderstand the feeling. And they think fear is all about getting rid of the feeling as quickly as possible, right? But actually fear was given to us as a skill. It's, a, it's an instinct that's actually very useful. So if a lion's coming towards you, you feel fear. This is how it was originally designed, right? And that gives you this power, this almost like superhuman power to push through and, and get away from the lion, run faster, climb higher, think quicker, right? And so I actually have learned to harness fear as an asset. I love fear. If I feel fear for anything, and I hardly feel fear for anything anymore, I lean into it. I remember when I was 21 years old and someone said, would you come and do a talk on stage? It'd be about a thousand people. I felt fear. My instinct was to say, oh, I can't do it. You know, I don't want to sweaty hands, like feel nervous. Why do I put myself through that, man? No. <laughs> but instead I went the opposite way. I'm like, absolutely, I'll do it. Nice. And then I went on stage to more, I did it more and more and more. And now I don't feel fear about it. In fact, I want to feel fear because it sharpens you. So I, I feel fear is an asset and I look, I, I don't, I'm not scared of fear and I, and I absolutely love risk. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't like, you know, there's risk that I won't take and there's risk that I will take. But I think it's one of the three key elements to being lucky in life. If you don't take risk, you will not be successful. And I have studied a lot of psychology around this. You know, like if you, if you do a marketing pitch and you say to people, you can save a pound by buying this product. Or yeah. you say to people, did you know it costs you a pound if you don't have this product? People will always go for the second one. Yeah. They will never go for the first one. 
Because people are like, oh, I'm all right as I am. They don't need to save anything, mate, you know. <laughs> but, but if they think it's costing them something, it kicks in a fear like, oh, God, it's costing me something. You know, mm. fear is also used as a leverage to motivate people, but people don't leverage it properly. Yeah. Right? I love fear. I don't like panic. I think panic is a, is a problem, but fear mm. is a real strength. And that's number one, build risk and love fear. Number two in how to get luckier is persistence. Now, I always say I'm a salesperson and I have been my whole life. Yeah, we'll do, I'm man. Absolutely, I'm absolutely proud of it. Now, a lot of people don't like the word sales and they try to fancy it. I've been a chairman. I've been a CEO, I've been an angel investor, you know, I, I've been a, a, an ambassador for China, you know, I've had every, every fancy title you can think of, and I, I, I still love sales the most. And I think if you're a good salesperson, and I mean like pure, you're selling yeah. something, believing it's good, then I, I think sales is a wonderful thing. It's a relationship builder, it can feed a business, it can grow a business. I love sales. But a lot of sales people that I've met, this generally they have a lack of persistence. They're not bad salespeople. I don't think there's such a thing. My number one salesperson in my in my agency was my accountant. Really? Can step it up, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and I can explain it why if anyone's yeah. interested. But you know, but basically, you know, everyone's a salesperson. You know, my accountant would go sit with CFOs and she'd just talk nicely about the company she enjoyed working at that had a good purpose. And that CFO that she was sitting with at lunch or dinner would hear that. And then he'd go back and tell his CEO, you know, there's this company called Fluid that are doing great things, you know, and then they call me up, hmm. you know. So, so basically what I'm saying, though, is that persistence is, is one of, is the second element to being lucky in life. And, and persistence is basically most people in sales, they'll do the, the three times rule, which basically they'll, they'll chase someone three times and then they'll give up. They'll say, I sent them an email, I phoned them, I left a message, they haven't got back to me, I'm moving on, yeah. right? And I, I do the 20 times rule. Nice. I, I basically, and it's not about being rude or over bothering people or it's a question of like, they don't understand that they need your product yet. Yeah. But, but I always tell people that I mentor that you know, you're not the CEO, you're ultimately the chief persistence officer. And, and, and what you're actually doing is you're motivating your team to keep pushing through the pain because there's glory on the other side of pain, right? And, and you're really about persistence. You're going to keep finding the business model. If we find in the business model till it works, you're going to keep pushing the business forward. And, and, and people that are persistent and people that take risks, they hugely increase their chances of being lucky. Now, the third element to being lucky in life, and this is, you know, I've, I've analyzed this for myself, so I know it is how it, it all played out for me, is knowing your destination. Now, a lot of people think they know their destination. So they might say, yeah, I want to make a million pounds, two million pounds or whatever it is, right? To me, you know, it's like getting in a car and talking about the fuel you put in the car when you're talking about money, right? The, the, the money is just the fuel for the car, right? So you can go where you want, mm. right? Yeah. But the actual destination of where that car is going, a lot of people don't define this properly, okay? So they're not very clear, for example, you know, what success is to them. Therefore, they'll get a business, they'll grow it to 50, I see this a lot, 15, 20 people, and they're like, God, this is actually a lot of hard work. And I tell them, you know, running a 15, 20 person company is harder work than running a 300 people company. Yeah, I imagine. So either be a five man company or be a 300 man and woman company, you know, like, and basically persistence, you know, mm. destination being clear and building risk ultimately will increase your chances of being lucky. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, I can end it there, to be honest with you. That's awesome, Simon. That's exactly why I wanted to get all of our views. So fast forward to right now today. Now that pretty much just explains the Good Luck Club podcast. But what's your, what's your ambition with the podcast? I know we're live on your TikTok. He's, uh, so someone yeah. has a lot of following 
uh, on TikTok. What's your tag on TikTok, Simon? Simon Squib 8. There you go, Simon Squib 8. I'm, I'm, um, I have fun on that one, so don't judge me. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, so, yeah, could you just kind of, and, and I'll get to a couple of questions that are in shifties as well. Um, yeah. But could you just kind of explain the Good Luck Club podcast, where it is, and what, 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 what the ambition for that is? Yeah. Well, okay. So, I'm, I mean, my whole life, I mean, you, there's this whole thing about, like, you know, your purpose in life, right? So, I think I figured out my purpose in life. And um, I think it's very important to think about that quite a lot. What is your purpose in life? And in, in January, I decided I wanted to start working again after having a baby. Well, my wife had the baby I watched. Uh, and and you know, I, 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 my son's going to school soon. That was the plan. Uh, and I thought, you know, I, I want to get back into it. And so I still have my business in Hong Kong, but I wanted to do something that wasn't about making money. And all my businesses previously were about making money. And, I, and I, I'm not against making money, but I, I wanted to uh, build something that was just pure. What I had discovered through my agency business of helping startups was, you know, as much as I, 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 mean, I was trying to help the 15 year old me, I was still charging a fee. Yeah. And, and that meant that there was always a, there was a, there was an angle on it for me. Right. So I would help them, but ultimately I was also covering my own back end. Right. Yeah. And then with Ness, when I was investing in startups, I was giving capital and I was giving, you know, help my network resources, access to the corporations. But, you know, I, I had, I basically had situations where a founder would come to me for advice and my instinct would probably have been said, to say to them, you're not enjoying this business anymore. Shut it out, shut it down and do something else. Sorry. But instead, because I'm an investor and I've got, you know, a payroll to meet and so on. Yeah. Now I'd be like, push through, man, persistence, yeah. you know? And there are times when persistence is the, you know, sometimes you've got to draw the line. You know, if your health is suffering, if your personal life is suffering, if you're not enjoying it, you know, you've got to just stop. Right. And, and I think as an investor, I didn't like the feeling that sometimes my advice was not 100% pure. So in January, when I started up this new platform, my, my idea was to never make money off the people I help. So a lot of people are like, Oh, Simon, that was great advice. Can I pay you a consultancy? I'm like, no, I'm going to give it to you for free. I don't, I don't want it. You wow. know, and then people will be like, Oh, you know, maybe when we can sponsor your podcast, I'm like, I don't want any commercialization on this right now. You know, I, I just want to give information and network access to people. So for example, I was just talking to a startup the other day, they got a brilliant idea. I really like the team and they're like, Simon, um, you know, if you help us, We'll give you 10% of the business. Yeah, sweat share time. Yeah, and I'm like, listen, uh, I'm going to give you that contact anyway. And that 10%, you give it to the company I'm going to introduce you to because they can help you so much more than me. Wow. You know, Mate, and, that's... And, and, so, and, I, and I'm not being, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, find an, an authentic way of helping entrepreneurs yeah. without getting anything back. Now, don't get me wrong. I think I'm out, you know, Talia works for me. She's not cheap. Um, I've, got, I've got a lot <laughs> that's of- That's because she's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's totally worth it. Um, but you know, I've got, I've got a payroll, uh, and I have, you know, I'm not, not generating money to cover the cost of all the stuff I'm trying to do, but what I'm ultimately want to do first is make sure I build something that's useful to people. And, you know, I, I can get a Netflix TV series done around, around to cover my costs, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I find, like the money, I don't worry about the money basically is what I'm saying. And I think yeah. I'm enjoying that process back in January, the good luck club podcast started off with simply this. I know all these amazing entrepreneurs that have these stories about how they made it. And I want them to tell those stories right now. A lot of them, like the last guy I just interviewed, a guy called Simon Long. Yeah. Seven years ago, you know, I sat with him. He just started, he left a very fancy, high paying job in a bank. 
and started his own bank called WeLab Banks. Wow. He's now got the largest online bank in the world, 42 million monthly active customers. And he, um, he, he has knowledge like you wouldn't believe about how to build a business, how to raise money, how to scale it, how to get clients. He's got all this insight, but he's got no time to mentor uh, 50,000 people a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so my, part of my podcast concept is, is, was at that time, interview these people, debate with them, because I have my philosophy as well. I'm not always right, but I like- I know, I've, I've watched some debates. Yeah, and I like, I like that. I like, you know, I don't like, you know, the whole, like, I'm right, this is my way. It was yeah. right for me. I didn't get much out of No school. one's right, yeah. I, I didn't get much out of school, so I, 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 you know, so I don't believe in education, but that doesn't mean other people I've interviewed have been very well educated, and that's, that's played well for them. Right. So, so I like having that debate about when is it good for you? When is it not? You know, my strategy of building a company is always like do it with no money, but other people have raised hundreds of millions yeah. um, and, and, and not and actually sold more. a product yet. <laughs> well, yeah, this, this, well, that's true. I mean, or, or they're growing a business, you know, like WeWorks into yeah. the concept of, you know, scaling. And so, you know, for me anyway, I, I started the podcast just, I wanted, a, you know, a hobby. Um, and, and, and you got then, bored. Partly, um, <laughs> but also I just, I also felt one of the things I, I really feel, you know, in my mandate is within the, the thing I'm doing is, is three things. One is I never want any entrepreneur to feel alone. Yeah. You know, and, I, and it's a funny old thing because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there and, and a lot of good groups like yours, but still as an entrepreneur, we often do feel alone. We feel like our cash flow problems are our cash flow problems. We feel like our, our staff, we've got to keep them happy, positive. So we're working hard to do that. We have to look after our clients. So we're working hard to do that. Often when we go home, we don't want to burden our wife or husband or partner with our, with our problems and make them worry. So we end up often feeling quite alone. And so part of my mandate is really to build content and information and resources so people never feel alone. They can go listen to someone. They might have a similar story to them, but they hear how they broke through and that makes them, they've got someone to listen to and connect with, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't want any entrepreneur to ever feel alone. I want to help 1 million people start a business of their own and become self-sufficient. They don't all have to be Facebook, but I don't think relying on people giving you a job is necessarily the future. No, so I want to help 1 million people uh, in my lifetime um, start a business of their own. And I think anyone could be an entrepreneur. People yeah. don't agree with me on that, but I think they can. Everyone's no, yeah, right. zero. no one's born a doctor. No one's born a lawyer. Everyone's got training and support and that's how it works, right? So, and then I want to help 10% of the world's unemployed uh, start a business of their own. So, you know, my mission is lofty, but my, my, at the moment, I'm just, I just like being pure about it. And my advice is, is if, uh, my network's advice and my partner's advice, which I see you as one of them, you know, uh, I see as pure, just trying to help. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Well, look, I mean, thank you for being here. You're helping right now. I'm, I'm seeing the comments on here and uh, yeah, it, you're certainly inspiring right now. So we appreciate your time. So can I, can I just get, get questions? So Cliff, Cliff's asked a question here. Um, so he, he says, great. It'd be great to know how, how much did Simon have strategies in place? Um, and how often were you prepared to change and go with the opportunities that present them? So essentially, you know, ha we, we had this, this year, this is a perfect example where we are right now, where I spent, uh, Cliff's one of my business partners. Um, we, we spent months preparing strategy for the new year, right? With this is it, this, we're going to do this thing and you know, it's all lined up and then bang coronavirus, mm -hmm. you know? So, so how, how, how important I suppose is it to adapt to change and, and how frequently did you have to change your strategy during the journey? Mm. 
Um, well, I mean, it's a good question, and it, it's, 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 there's no clear answer. I think one element I would just mention, I, I was in Hong Kong in 2003 when the SARS virus hit. SARS virus is basically coronavirus 1.0. Really, the major difference between uh, SARS virus and coronavirus is the incubation period for SARS was seven days, and coronavirus is 14 days, so you don't spot it as quick. Um, yeah. Plus, they contained it really well in Hong Kong at the time, so it didn't spread around the rest of the world. But you know, during that time, that's a good example of, we, we had a design business. We were design and marketing. We were quite unique because we did design and marketing in combo. Most businesses were either design or they were marketing. And that was one of our things. Plus we were quite strong in digital, which again was quite a weak area for a lot of the big companies like Ogilvy and Leo Burnett who we were competing against. But, but, but just to explain you know, your point about strategy and answer Cliff's question, I can tell it by a story, I think, because during that time, we were design and marketing. We had Credit Suisse as a client, like I mentioned earlier, Estee Lauder as a client, and, and we were doing great guns. It was all going well. And then that virus hit. And just like you just experienced here, I've seen it all before. Everything shut down. Everyone stopped doing business. You know, our normal clients, Credit Suisse, they all stopped. They like froze, right? And during that time, two things happened that um, I think we changed our business strategy. First, all the big companies laid off all their talent. For the first time in the, in the whole history of my years in that, in that market, I suddenly saw people that I wanted to hire for the longest time suddenly being available. Nice, nice. And, and basically, we hired them, right? And that wasn't our strategy to go, you know, triple our payroll during a crisis. <laughs> no, it never is. I, I feel that now, mate. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was not our strategy, but, you know, we listened to our gut instinct. And by the way, that's another thing people don't, you know, don't, don't work on enough, right? Now, I, I built my gut instinct because every time I used to ask my mum a question when I was a kid, she'd say, what do you think? She never used to answer my question. And I had to search inside for the answer, right? And I built my gut instinct. And my gut instinct said, hire these people, right? So I hired them. The second element was the core clients that we had, right? We didn't sit back and say, well, shit, they've stopped giving us business. So let's just scale back and wait till they come back. No, we said, who is growing right now? Yep. Right? So... In today's world, I'd have Zoom as a client by next week. You know, I'd have. I don't doubt it. I'd have, you know, I, that, and that's what we did. We went after, you know, brands like Alibaba, which I mean, goes nice, three times the size of Amazon now. You know, like. Oh, we, they're crazy. We, we, we went after big companies um, that we knew were going to grow because online was going to be bigger because people still needed those things that they were buying in shops. Yeah, um, but, but they, you know, so, so that's what we did. And we grew the business. And, and, and what was fascinating, I mean, I think coronavirus is going to last a bit longer. So and I'm not suggesting people do this, but we tripled our payroll. We took a huge risk. And, and, we, and, and when, when we came out the other end, what was fascinating in Hong Kong, everyone went gangbusters when they came out the other end. They're like, shit, we've got to make up a quarter and a half. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. like, Where's all the people we normally work with? What's fucking happened to them? They're not at Ogilvy anymore or Leo Burnett anymore. Oh, they're at Fluid. And we just, we got all the work. Yeah, of course. You know, we, were, we were ready. We were ready. You know, we, we took risk. We were persistent and we knew our destination. Right. So back to the point about strategy from, from Cliff. Right. You know, I, 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 I mean, with a Good Luck Club podcast, as an example, I just wrote down the mission. I just said, right, what do we want this platform to achieve? Right. And then I said, right, what's the first step? Right. Let's interview some interesting people. So I asked my wife, who should be my guest. I bought a hundred pound mic, stuck it yeah. down on the table. You can go watch this. It's the crappiest recording in history <laughs> and I asked my wife about you know success and luck and all these things and and that's how I started and I knew she had knowledge that if I got it out of her because she's quiet but you know like mentors yeah. are I you could, work I, together as well right and yeah we worked together for 10 years that's another thing like, you know another uh, yeah, well, Christine and I do too you know 
Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely rave about working with my partner. I, I think, I, I, mean, I, I will say to people, like, when you move in with someone, you learn something about them. And that, you know, you've never married someone about moving in with them, right? I kind of feel the same way about, like, working with someone. We, I worked day in, day out for 11 years with Helen. Yep. And, and you know, I, I know her in and out. I know, she, I know her moral code. And I think sometimes you don't know someone's moral code until you test it, right? I saw in 2003 when we almost couldn't meet payroll and all Helen could think about was, let's cut about all of our expenses, Simon, and do, make sure we pay people first, pay our rent, whatever's left, if there's anything, we have it. Otherwise, we didn't go out. We didn't, you know, she totally materialistic free, you know, like, and, and, I, and I discovered that by going through those hard times. But and I, I've seen it on the other side, I've seen bankers when I come home, I know that these types, they're completely different when they get home. You know, they're all gentle and nice. They go to work and they're screwing people, sending them mortgages they can't afford, you know, like they don't give a shit. And it's not till they get divorced from that person, they find out who they really are. And I think you get that when you work with someone, you know, you figure out, you know, are they messy or not, you know? <laughs> I'm definitely messy. <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, but uh, sorry, I think I'm that answers. So, so really, so to summarize there, it's like, the, the mission's what's important, the strategy. Yeah, for me, that's right. The mission, the mission is key, but you know, I do have a basic plan, which is you know, I'm going to produce a video a week of useful um, tips on one area or another, how to raise money or how to build a brand, or, and I'm going, to build, I'm going to build one good podcast a week that I can put out into the universe. Now I look at the strategies of how podcasts put it out, right? I mean, a lot of it is already out there. You put it on Spotify, you put it on Apple Music, you put it up on you know, these different platforms. And so, that, so I basically, I base my plan on what is already out there. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. No. And then things like social media, I, I mean, honestly, I don't plan it. I mean, I just go with what's happening day to day and what feels right to put out there. And Talia will tell you that sometimes drives her a little bit crazy. But I bet it does. I bet it does. I don't think, I don't think you can necessarily plan things too far ahead. I know, I know people that hire social media companies and they're planning three or four weeks ahead from now. But I take three weeks from now, you don't know what open letters being sent and what issue, issues become up that's relevant. You know, and so sometimes it's a waste of time. Why not do it daily? It takes five minutes anyway. And I think, I think there are things that I see as like the mission and the vision you have to plan out. Yeah. And anything, every time you do a partnership, for example, mm -hmm. you have to make sure it matches your mission and vision. I always reference back to that. Like, would this partnership hurt this mission or does it enhance it? Yeah. But after that, for me, a lot of it is like instinct. You know, like hire this person now. This feels right. I've got a gap here. I've, I've hired this person to do this. There's still a gap here, so let's hire that. You know, like, and, and, and especially at the beginning, the zero to one bit, I think it's like that. When you get to one, I say building a, you know, Facebook is a hundred, let's say. You know, yeah. zero to one is what entrepreneurs do well. Yes, right? All right, that's right. The one to 10 bit, um, which is when PwC bought my business, I think maybe it's five to 10 in fairness to me, but you know, they, 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 when they buy the business, they, they have their 52 offices around the world that they can copy and paste my formula into, right? Yeah. I didn't want to be on a plane opening up 50 offices. So I'll sell it to PwC and let them do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's easier for them to insert it in every office. Then I, that's not what I'm good at. I don't want to be on a plane opening up offices, but, but I do think the zero to one bit very much for me is touchy feely, especially when I, I don't want to end up like, having you know not enjoying what i'm doing no, so no, sometimes no. if you have a big plan you know and you're in the middle of it and you're like i've got to continue with this plan because i sold it to an investor yeah you get stuck you know they get stuck executing on a plan they don't enjoy no i get that and, and i think on the whether it be social media whether it be learning how to upload podcast or whether it be starting a commercial cleaning company whatever the thing is i think that that's zero to one i always say the first year two years from my own experience so far in starting multiple businesses that first year is like you can't do anything wrong really like you just got you're trying things you're, you're you're experimenting you're learning you're researching you 
it's, it's only if you don't take those risks and you try, you know, not trying the things where it becomes a problem. So if you, if you plan just by the book that was written 10 years ago, then you can have a few surprises that are, are, are expensive and uh, unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at interviews from people like Jeff Bezos in the early days, you know, he just said, look, I could see that people needed books, online books was the easiest people to buy. He saw a graph showing the growth of online. Yeah. He knew it was going to happen, so he wanted to build an online business. And then he said the easiest thing for people to buy initially online is books. Yeah. He just, you know, he just started selling books. He was packing the boxes himself. You know, he's, we've all seen that. We've seen that pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Amazon written on the back of the wall. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and that, that gives him, I call it the touch point, you know, like, that's why, I mean, I can hire a social media company. I've got the resources to do it, but I, I won't know my audience if I do that. Yeah, you know? so, and, and I know my audience. I know, I know when they're asking me for content, what to produce because of it. And I know what guests to get on my show based on what's missing from their knowledge base, you know? So, and if I don't have that interaction on Spotify or Apple Music or that interaction with the data, then, and I can hire someone else to do it. And I, and I you know, I'm tempted because, you know, I, I, as I'm busy man. Yeah, because you can, but I, but I also find myself enjoying knowing how it works and i think i'm i'm more effective as a as a as a leader of a business if i actually know how to do the things i'm asking someone else to do that's um, a great point oh so yeah it's a great point okay you happy to take i've got another couple of questions here sure you you're uh, you've certainly ignited something once i get once i get through the uh, the TikTok jab jabs and whatever else is going on in the middle there um so here's a question from kirsty goddard Hi, Kirsty. So, Simon, um, you have such clarity, she says. Is that a natural gift, do you think? Or have you learned to see things differently over time slash with experience? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I think there were two points in my life where I, I, well, probably three points where I woke up a bit. Um, when I was 15 years old, if you'd asked me at 14 years old, I was going to be a lawyer. And I really didn't know anything else. My, my parents were both entrepreneurs. Anyone who grew up in Sydney probably knew my family. They were entrepreneurs. They were quite well known in St. Neitz, property development, own businesses, and, and so on. But um, my parents both really kind of had me pegged as a lawyer. And I guess they needed one. There's so many businesses. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't need one. They never got into any legal. But I think they. I think that like I, I can understand the sentiment. When you're an entrepreneur, sometimes it's like, why didn't you get a profession? If you become a lawyer, you know, in that generation, it's like, yeah, you become yeah. a lawyer, you've got a guaranteed income. It's respected. You know, we'll be proud to say you're, you know, our son and you're a lawyer. You know, there's lots of dynamics at play. Most careers are born by the parents' wishes. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think, you know, in my mind, I was brainwashed. Like, okay, yeah, be a lawyer. And, I, you know, you watch these shows where lawyers stand up and defend the innocent. There's something definitely that appealed to me about Yeah, of course. Um, I've since interviewed a lawyer who became an entrepreneur. And, and in the end, you only end up defending people who are actually guilty because they only go to trial if they are nine times out of ten guilty. But anyway, something happened to me. And um, most people who, uh, math powers will know this. My father died um, in front of me when I was 15 years old, oh. suddenly of a heart attack. And at that moment, I think um, my whole life changed, of course, not only you know, no longer have my father in my life. Uh, I, I, I just, I started having this like deep, something woke up in my brain. You know, what is the, you know, this kind of question of like, what is the purpose of life? Which can be a negative question or a positive question, right? Um, and, and, and if you don't say it right, it can come across as a negative question. What's the purpose of life? You know, or like, what's the purpose of life? You know, like, <laughs> See, that's it. So, um, and so I, I basically, yeah, something just kind of clicked in my brain. And I was like, I analyzed my dad's life a little bit. And, and he, he started being an entrepreneur quite late in life. He was in the REF and then he worked for a rank Xerox company. And then um, rank Xerox changed its structure and kind of let him go after 15 years of working for them. And then he started his own business. Um, and I only really knew him as an entrepreneur, but th this whole life history, of course, I was told um, when I was a kid. 
But I, I basically felt like he started his working his hardest when he had four kids and a huge uh, burden on, on business-wise and uh, a very demanding wife, my mother. And I, I think it killed him. <laughs> you know, I think at, at 56 years old, he just couldn't take it, all, all the stress of it. Um, and, and I kind of had this idea in my head, like, why don't I start younger? Yeah. You know, like, if I start at 15, then, you know, uh, the theory was, and it actually worked out, that, um, you know, I, I, would, I would be ahead of the game. And, you know, I wouldn't be working for someone until I'm 40. Yeah, now. wait for redundancy or whatever. Yeah. And my, yeah. So my dad was 56 when he died. He kind of like was 40 when he became an entrepreneur. I knew him as an entrepreneur my whole life. But actually before that, he had a whole life up to the age I am, you know, like of being employed, stroke working for the RAF. And so, you know, I remember him telling stories when I was a kid about how he worked so hard for this company and they just let him go. And I had this idea that they were evil corporations in my mind, but they weren't evil corporations. It wasn't just, it wasn't that. It was more like, and I've experienced this since, since then, but you know, sometimes they have to let people go. Look at COVID. You know, there's not yes. companies that don't want to let people go. It's just, you're not in control of the cash flow. You're not in control of the business. And therefore, you're not in control of your own destiny. And I always describe it, that you're actually locked into the matrix. You don't realize it, you know? Mm. But to back to the question, I think, you know, I was 15 years old. I had that waking up moment. Uh, then I built my own businesses and learned, and I loved being an entrepreneur. And I couldn't get a job, really. I mean, I did yeah. dabble in getting work. You're definitely unemployable, dude. I am now. I've spent I enough time. <laughs> but when I was a kid, you know, to be honest, yeah. my first business didn't work out that well. I did get a job, you know, and I did, like everyone does, I, I worked as a bartender and I worked in Victoria Wines in Sydney's High Street. I was six oh, yeah. years old. I lied on the application form to get the job because you're supposed <laughs> to be 15. And I, you know, I, I did these things to pay for my business and, and paid my rent because the business didn't make any money at the beginning. So I did these things. I worked for people. And, you know, it was a pleasant surprise to me actually working for people. There was this team spirit. You know, Victoria once is probably a bad example. But, but there was a team spirit there. I liked the manager. You know, like I, I, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And it could have sucked me in because being self-employed and working for yourself are like opposite ends of the system. So absolutely work for someone at the beginning is actually much nicer. It's much easier. You've got a whole team there already family straight ready to go or want to be your friend you've got a guaranteed amount of money coming in and you're learning you know but over time it gets more and more painful yeah and you start to dislike some of the people there they're maybe you know they're not ethical or whatever you don't like what the company's doing direction wise or your boss changes and suddenly it's an asshole whereas being an entrepreneur is completely the opposite it's so fucking hard at the beginning but over yeah. time, as, it's, as you succeed and you win, you get freer and freer and freer. And you come out the other end thinking, God, I can never work for someone, right? Yeah. But, um, but the second moment for me was really um, when I, I kind of had this opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And I was, I was actually nervous. Funny, I talk about fear. There was, you know, my, I was working. I had a good life, really, in England at that point. And I was living in Stevenage. And I, I was actually living at the uh, uh, Blakemore Thistle Hotel, if anyone knows it. I don't it's, it's, it's now no longer a official hotel. I forget what it's called now. But anyway, I, I was living at that hotel. I had a good life. There, the swimming pool there, and I, I had a good life. And but then I got this opportunity to go to Hong Kong, and I just said, "I'm going to do it." And I sold up everything, and I moved to Hong Kong. And that was the second waking up moment for me. That's, that's that. I can see where that clarity is built in those moments, and now I'm sure many other moments help tighten the clarity. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I got when I got to Hong Kong, I also I realized how big the world was. Yeah. You know, and I realized how small London is compared or how, and how, you know, and I, and I come from a, from Sydney and I, and I am a country person. I'll end up back there, I think. Well, you're welcome, man. You'll Down, be in the hub. I'll come and visit. And, and I, I do look at houses online there quite often. Uh, but, <laughs> but my point is that um, I, when I got to Hong Kong, I think it woke me up. I kind of, and I also learned how to work hard. I thought I was working hard 
before, but I wasn't, like I said earlier in the, in the, in the chat. Yeah. You know, and I think it woke me up. And I, I started mixing with people that were mission driven. They were very, very they, were, they were super successful, but they, they didn't just sit back and say, right, I'm going to go live in Spain, which is kind of my original dream, you know, like yeah, yeah. buy a villa in Spain and sit on the beach. You know, and these, people, <laughs> these people could have bought Spain. <laughs> so like, and, 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 Definitely and, could now. And they were, not, they were not stopping, you know, and they were enjoying it. Yeah. And I think there's something I, you know, I hadn't quite got to grips with, you know, it always kind of surprised me. If you've made all this money, why would you not stop? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and, yeah, I hear that. Yeah. And, 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 and so anyway, I mean, that was my second week. And then the third time, just to kind of cap off the simple. That's fine. I basically, I married the right person. Yeah. I think your partner shapes you so much. And, you know, my, and we all have good and bad in us. I don't care who you are. Some, some, I think what, whoever you're surrounded with, can draw those things out on you. I always say money can't make you happy unless you're already happy. And I kind of feel like in relationships, it's the same. You know, you can end up hanging out with someone and they, you end up by osmosis picking up their vibe and, you know, blah, 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 and, and, and simulating them. I, 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 I basically punched above my weight. You know, Helen, my wife now, who was my business partner, um, she, she, her IQ's through the roof. She, I can debate with her. I get sharper debating with her. Her moral code is like, just she's just such a good person. And I think, you know, that, that was the other thing that kind of woke me up. I, I'm, I never really felt like I had someone who in, you know, inspired me in that way. And again, woke me up. You know, she, she kind of, we, she, she's into psychology, so it helped. But, you know, she made me understand things like the subconscious part of my brain and the conscious part of my brain. The subconscious part of our brain is programmed the age zero to seven. You know, like we're doing things without even realizing yeah. it. Yeah, I, I have a I have a chocolate obsession, and it's partly because on Wednesday nights my mum used to give us chocolate as a reward for being good that week, right? <laughs> I didn't know that was why, you know. Yeah. Don't get Cliff's side on this, because <laughs> he'll go nuts on that subject. Yeah. Anyway, so so that's why. I mean, that's what happened to me. And I think you know, in the last ten years, I've got clarity. In the last three years, since I've since I've you know had a child, but that's a whole new level of clarity for me. You know, like yeah, I imagine. I imagine. That's awesome, man. Well, look, I've got one more question from Jemima. I'm, I'm conscious of time. Are you okay for the time, Simon? Yeah, I'm good. You sure? Yep. Yeah, fine. Tell me, be straight. As always, be blunt with me. Got a few other comments in here um, from Cliff. Uh, they're saying, you know, invest in best people and grow. Tom, that's a brilliant mission. And I think Cliff said, yeah, Cliff said he's happy to build you a house and he'll put a podcast studio in the garden for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, send me the invoice. <laughs> um, okay, so Jemima, uh, so Simon, during your experience in the SARS outbreak, did you find people who niched lost their edge um, and people who generalized won? So I think she's saying, it, should she open up her narrow focus to, a wider, to, to look for wider opportunity? Okay, I, I get this question a lot around niche, and- yep. um, And I know your opinion on this, so I'm looking forward to this, go. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, in marketing, we, we marketing people, and I'm, I, you know, if I'm upgrading myself from a salesperson to a marketing person for a minute, you know, we always talk about niche, you know, get, hit a niche, um, and and okay, here's my thing. I think people are missing the point, right? You, it's not about niche or not niche. It's about who do you like working with. Yes. You know, what's going to make your day uh, pleasurable, and what's going to allow you, therefore, to scale it because you enjoy it, right? If people go after niche instead of what I've just said, they end up filling a niche with miserable people, you know, conceptually, right? And I, and I feel like, you know, it's, it's, again, it's back to the mission and vision, not 
where you should target. Now, you've got a more general question here, which is interesting, which is, you know, during a downturn, if your niche, are you in trouble? Well, it depends on what your niche is. But like yeah. I said, I was, I was in Hong Kong during SARS, I had quite a lot of finance-based clients. So they all got hit, right? Yeah. Um, just like in 2008, they got hit again. But um, people like Alibaba grew. So I didn't have to change who I was or what we did. I just had to find somebody else I liked working with that was growing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't a question of niche. It was a question of, you know, who's the right client based on who I want to work with and what we do, you know, that's going to make, have a fit. Nice. Um, but when people start businesses, I know, I know niche is an interesting, you know, topic. And, and I always bring up the subject of like Facebook. Of course, when Facebook started, you could argue they started in a niche because they went to a university and, and emailed it out. And then they, those people in the university liked it and they shared it with other universities. And then it became this crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. political machine. And, and uh, I feel like, um, you know, that wasn't really a niche marketing strategy, which gets thrown around as a niche marketing strategy. It wasn't a niche marketing strategy. No. It was Mark Zuckerberg's in that uni. And he wanted those people to like him. Circumstance, yeah. You know, it was just what resources he had available and what he wanted to do. I mean, he wanted to build something that made him a, so, he's a socially awkward person could allow him to be socially popular. And, and so, you know, he used his skills in programming and, his, and where he was. There's no sitting down having a marketing niche conversation. Let's hit universities. <laughs> no, like, um, and, and, and even out. for me, you know, like, I was saying to Alex, I, I would go uh, to Sydney's tomorrow and go to every single school there and help the kids there become entrepreneurs or, or teach them about entrepreneurship. It's not a niche, Sydney's. It's where I came from. Yeah. You know, like, it could be a niche because if I made the story work there in a little, you know, smaller town. Then, then, more, then, then I could use that and PR it and it, you know, I can blast out the niche. No, I care about that town. I care about the people in it. I come from that place. I can talk to it. You can leave school at, from Long Sands with no education and you can still make it. You know, and so it's not a niche. I think that's the thing. We've kind of got to get rid of that word, I think. Yeah, it's a, hard, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And these guys will appreciate this. From, I, I say a lot. You know, knowing, knowing you're Roger, right? So it's like, for me, like when I speak to camera, when I'm on social media or when I... Um, when I'm speaking to a client, I'm, I'm only thinking about my Roger, my, my, the person I've painted this picture of this person, this ideal person I want to work with. And when I find them, we connect and that's all I care about. I don't care if we're selling ice cream or widgets, like let's do, let's do this, you know? And I think that's, I mean, I've, had, I've had that, I've had that with competitors, right? Yeah. Like I, I've actually become friends with competitors and then, we, you know, we've merged businesses and joined forces. And initially you're like, I, I hate you because you're doing exactly what I'm doing. So we're competitors and then you get on with them. You're like, hold on a minute. Why don't we just, you know, one plus one equals 11. We collaborate. It might not be my marketing plan to um, do that. I mean, Elon Musk used to talk about this because he didn't come up with PayPal. No. He had a competitor called X. And then he met the guys at PayPal, Peter Thiel and those guys. And he's like, wow, you guys are almost as smart as me. Why don't we team up? And then, you know, he joined forces with them and shut his own company down. And then, you know, the rest is history. So, you know, you don't have strategies to these things. Like you say, Ali, it's quite right. I think it's to do with chemistry with the people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, the main ingredient of life. People. Firstly, I just want to say thank you, mate, for coming here and doing this. You're getting a lot of love in Shifties right now, Simon. It's, um, you've touched... Uh, 
You've really, yeah, you've got to, yeah, you're, you're definitely just hitting the note, man. And do you know why? And this is exactly, so on the last point that we just talked about just then, right? Everything you're saying is, this is why we've connected because we have the same values. We have the same mission, as you said. So all of what you're saying resonates completely here. And Shifties was born out of troublemakers and disruptors like me. Um, so yeah, you, you, you're hitting the notes, mate. I mean, that was fucking awesome, dude. Oh, thank you. I basically appreciate the chance to talk to everyone. As I say, I feel like I'm connecting with my, my people.